So here we are, after, if my memory serves me right, three days of intensive concentration practice. At least for some of you. <laughs> for some of you that comes and goes. So, but at least exploring this realm, this domain of gathering and unifying the mind, the attention, and seeing the capacity that we have, or even getting a little taste of the possibility of the mind with a depth of presence, with a depth of clarity and uh, intensity to the focus. So tomorrow we will be shifting the attention to uh, Vipassana practice, applying that unified, gathered attention. And I will say more about that tomorrow morning. But this evening I'm going to talk about uh, one of the main theoretical underpinnings of this retreat and also of the Buddha's teaching, which is the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And so um, we'll be using this gathered attention, this collected attention, to explore intimately in our own experience these truths, how they manifest, how to work with them, how to deepen our understanding. So mostly I'll be focusing on the first noble truth this evening. So as has been mentioned at the time of the Buddha, the cultural, spiritual milieu at that time, there was an intense um, seeking and yearning, uh, wandering ascetics, many different teachers and traditions exploring what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, to be conscious, what it means to be awake, what it means to be free, and how to work with the challenges and the vicissitudes of life, how to move in the world with kindness, consciousness, clarity. And what's interesting is that's very true of our time today. There's also an equal, not equal, but there's a similar uh, yearning, hunger, for you and for millions of people uh, all over the world to the same questions that plagued the Buddha, that plagued Patanjali, Lao Tzu, the great teachers of the age, which is how do we uh, live in this human condition that's subject to the joys and the sorrows of life? How do we navigate? How do we live wisely? How do we know ourselves? So, of course, the Buddha was also very much uh, in this milieu, and this was, this was a, a keen and urgent pressing question for him, which is what uh, moved him to renounce what seemed like a privileged life uh, into an ascetic life to explore. You know, he would say... Um, why? Because I am subject to birth, old age, sickness, and death, these causes of suffering. Why do I keep seeking that which is also subject to birth, old age, sickness, and death? Why don't I seek the deathless, the supreme refuge, peace, nibbana, which Richard was pointing to yesterday? And it's also clear from the text that the Buddha was no stranger to suffering, as was also mentioned recently. 
the Buddha lost his mother at childbirth. So from the very outset, would have known a very deep and intimate suffering. And the suffering of family life and obligations, expectations, he was expected to take over his family, his father's duties, etc. And when he went into the homeless life and uh, um, uh, became uh, what we now know as the Buddha and developed his order of nuns and monks, uh, still he wasn't free from, from strife. There were a lot of spiritual teachers uh, who were jealous and spiritual scenes that were competitive. He was ridiculed. He was um, uh, death threats uh, against him. Uh, just like you, had a body, got sick, got old, uh, had backache. Um, so it said you would sometimes not give the Dharma talk that night. Say, I'm going to go give the Dharma talk, Dharma talk because I've got a bad back. I need to go lie down. Sound familiar? He was very human, of course. He was a human being, just like us. So he was subject to all the, the vicissitudes that challenge us. But what perhaps was different um, is that he had discovered a way to find, to be at peace in the midst of those changing conditions. To find that which um, allowed him to remain at ease, at peace, equanimous, through all those turbulent times. And that's the, the message, that's the invitation of these teachings, these practices. And the good news is we all have that potential. And the starting place, and you could say the ending place also, is this jewel of awareness that we have inherently within the nature of our minds. It allows us to see, that allows us to know what's true, what's who we are. So it's said in the text after the Buddha's awakening, um, he spent many, many days and weeks reflecting on the ripples and the outflow of the insights that came from that uh, awakening, and then uh, set out to find his closest friends, his ascetic buddies, who had been practicing with for many years, to share his, his newfound wisdom and teaching. So it said he walked 100 miles to um, uh, Shravasti, to, um, uh, where they were practicing, and gave the, what's called the Dharma Chakra Brafadana Sutta, which is the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. It's the first discourse of the Buddha that turned this great body of teachings into action, which we are feeling the reverberation of some 2,600 years later. So, and in that teaching, he primarily focused on this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So I'll be giving a little overview of those teachings, uh, but mostly focusing on the first, and then in later talks we'll focus on the others. And the inspiration for his teaching um, was that he saw that out of ignorance, out of not seeing clearly, that people would keep creating their own suffering by not seeing the causes of happiness, not understanding what brings happiness and what brings peace and what brings sorrow, people would keep reinventing the wheel of suffering. That sound familiar? By not seeing clearly, we keep repeating, keep engaging in actions and thoughts and beliefs and habits that keep us bound in a certain way. So, of course, we live in a culture that doesn't exactly um, support awakened living. If you've ever turned on the TV or listened to talk radio. So, just, to, just in case you've forgotten what it's like out there. <laughs> so, um, in case you want, wanted to know what enlightenment looked like, uh, it looks like a bottle of Corona Light beer. Enlightened. So, we have the ordinary... Corona, and then we have Corona Light, which of course is enlightened. So, 
if this feels too difficult, <laughs> there's always an easier option. I don't know if it works, though. I'm not sure if there's probably some fine print that I can't see without my glasses that says, enlightenment not guaranteed. And I came across this recently. This is a picture of a beautiful landscape in Idaho. And it says, take a picture to some of Idaho's holiest sites. And it's an it's a, it's a advert for the Idaho Gulf Trail. So there's a picture of uh, the holy site of one of Idaho's great golf courses. So rather sad indictment of our culture, I would say. Anyhow, so um, moving right along. <laughs> So the Buddha was sometimes referred to, he had many, many names. Um, he was referred to as the happy one. He was referred to as the great physician. And uh, in the context of him being referred to as the great physician, um, the way that he uh, diagnosed the human condition is uh, what was then a traditional way of diagnosing uh, health and illness. So in the Four Noble Truths, it's, it's categorized into this system of the diagnosis of the problem, which is there is suffering, there is unsatisfactoriness, there is pain in this life. And then the second being the cause, or the etiology, the cause of that dis-ease, that stress, that anguish. And then the prognosis, the possibility of healing and health and what that looks like. And the fourth being the uh, prescription, in this case the path of what supports, what leads to that uh, prognosis of freedom, of cessation, of the possibility of awakening and peace. So we can use this very simple formula whenever we encounter suffering. Whenever you feel some contraction, some tightness, some anguish, some fear, some identification with some story, some belief, or you just don't know but you feel like you're bound in something, and you can, you can reflect, what is this? What is this? What is the cause of this? What, what, is, what is bringing this into being? What would allow this to, to cease? to pass into cessation, which is another way of describing uh, the third noble truth. What steps can I take to uh, allow that to unfold? So another way of um, summarizing uh, this teaching, which the, the, the teaching of the four noble truth, as you may know, is really uh, the teaching that uh, all the other teachings of the Buddha fit into. All the other teachings are, are, are outflows of this central premise. Suffering and the end of suffering, happiness or peace, and the causes of happiness and peace. That's what we're looking at here. That's why we cultivate this clarity and depth of attention and awareness. So we can see. Why, what, why is it? How is it? that we're not simply, here we are at Spirit Rock, it's beautiful, it's, we're having Indian summer, we're fed, it's quiet, there's beautiful people, we get to practice yoga and sit all day. It's pretty good. <laughs> Why is it in these last three or four days you may have been feeling torment? and distress, and anguish, and fear, and aloneness, and separation, and judgment, even though you're supposed to renounce those today, and comparing, and <laughs> all those other things. What, you know, we want to understand, how is it in these very favorable supportive conditions that there's dis-ease, that there's pain, that there's suffering, and not to judge that. Judging just shuts down the inquiry. We want to Leave judgment aside, which is a beautiful way, to, beautiful intention to practice renunciation. So we can go, oh, what is this? I wake up in the morning and I feel tight. I feel tense. I know it's ridiculously early in the morning, but aside from that, what is this tightness? What, what, what is happening in the mind, body, heart stream uh, causing this discomfort? 
So to be curious, so to apply this, this, this concentrated mind into curiosity. So I mentioned that term that when the Buddha was often referred to as the happy one, because often what we know of Buddhist teachings is that, uh, or what the common view of Buddhist teachings is that it focuses and emphasizes a lot on suffering. And it can lead you to believe that, well, maybe it's a pretty grim path. It's not a bhakti path. It's not a sukha path. But that's actually the opposite. The, the exploration of what interferes with our well-being is actually what allows the heart and the mind to blossom into well-being, into peace, into beautiful qualities of heart and mind. <clears throat> so, and I always want to make a quick comment about the word noble. The Buddha was um, very uh, masterful with language and uh, often played with uh, with with the language of the time and often um, um, reinterpret the meaning. So noble or Arya, um, which at the time was often ascribed to uh, one's birth and the caste in which one, one was born into, in his understanding, what made someone noble, what ennobled somebody was how they lived. How they, what, what actions they chose, their intentions for living. And so the eightfold, the, the fourfold, the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the four noble truths are ennobling in that they support us to live a more wise, kind, awake life. Just as when you come here and you show up with whatever arises on your mat, on your cushion, in the kitchen, wherever you are, um, there's a certain ennobling quality in that you're agreeing to and consenting to to show up, no matter how difficult the ride is. Right? None of you have left yet, as far as we know. You're here and you're facing it, and it's, it's a certain ennobling quality to it. And I hope you feel that the the nobility of this work, because it's not easy work, as you as you can see. So. Um, so I want to explore in some depth this, this the first noble truth. Uh, there is suffering. Not life is suffering, but there is suffering. And the Buddha used the word dukkha. Well, the, the word that was written down several hundred years after the, the Buddha passed away, with it, the word that was used is dukkha which means many things, as these Pali and Sanskrit words have very rich uh, meanings and no one English word covers it. So um, it's often translated as suffering, but it also in a more contemporary uh, translation would be anguish or stress or distress. It's also understood to be uh, uh, in, uh, unbearable to... important. <laughs> <laughs> unable to bear when we're not able to with, to hold something. Yeah. Incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. Have you ever noticed that with things, people and retreats, and incapable of providing lasting satisfaction or fulfillment? So that's what that's the sort of strict definition of dukkha. And the Buddha said, "Well, what is dukkha?" Because birth is dukkha. So we're screwed from the start. We've taken birth. <laughs> that could be the physical birth coming into a, into a vulnerable human body. Sure, and you look at a baby and they're vulnerable. It can be suffering at times. Or it can be taking birth in any moment when we take birth in some self-identity. I'll give another interpretation of that. So birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Is anybody not aging yet? <laughs> Sickness is suffering. Decay is suffering. Death is suffering. None of us are immune to these things. Sorrow, lamentation, and despair is suffering. Another 
way of understanding dukkha is this idea of unsatisfactoriness. And the Buddha gave this analogy of, uh, in those days, they didn't have Audis and VWs, they had uh, bullocks and cots and uh, wooden wheels. And uh, so the Buddha gave the analogy, I'm sure this was a common experience, of the wheel of the cart being slightly unround. Imagine, it's like being on a bicycle that's with a buckled wheel. So every revolution of the wheel, you get a little wobble, you get a little discomfort, a little shaking of the, of the wagon. Yeah, so it's, it's almost good enough, but it's, there's a little there's a dis-ease, discomfort in it. And this is a very common experience where we have that experience where it's just not quite right. You know, I get my, I bring my special, what are these things, buckwheat cushions, and they're just a little too, well, let's say hard. <laughs> or I, I got this really great yoga mat uh, as a gift recently. Big, thick thing. I think it's all recycled, and it's like a double wide. <laughs> Super long. I was like, oh, this is going to make my yoga practice really great. <laughs> and then, of course, then it's off-gassing. You know, those new, especially the recycled um, yoga mats, they have this kind of off-gassing thing. So it mostly hangs out on the washing line, (laughs) waiting for me to use it. (laughs) The not-quite-rightness. This is a very common experience sitting in meditation, or in in any moment. We're sitting and we feel relatively at ease, we're relaxed. But there's just a sort of a slight gnawing like, mm, there's just, if only, I can't even think what it would be, but I, I know this something would make this moment better. A little more concentrated, a little more open, a little, a little more cappuccino, something that would just allow me to mm, open or be or, you know, be in the zone. Or. My definition of dukkha is it's hard to be human. Plain and simple, it's hard to be human. It's hard to be a human body with that's sensory, that's very uh, tuned and um, uh, vulnerable to the environment and to uh, with an open, sensitive heart and a, a heart that feels the suffering of the world and uh, that's uh, subject to one's life and conditioning. It's just there's just there's just a challenge in in that, in a certain way, from a certain perspective. I was teaching a course recently uh, up in the mountains and uh, we did a check-in, it was a small retreat, so I did a check-in where everybody just shared why they came. And it was, I, was, I was astounded, not surprised, but just struck by the depth of suffering that was in the room. There was a person who, um, who had been was very successful at a certain time in his life and was about to lose had lost pretty much everything uh, as 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 much as one could lose almost and a woman who was really close to the edge with just struggling how to survive uh, you know and it's true with people here you know we come we we come to practice for many reasons, some of us come because we're inspired by the possibility by the the, the jewels by the, the 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 capacity the potential to awaken to grow to open some of us can't be and most of us I think are drawn because of the anguish because of some pain sorrow difficulty struggle challenge with ourselves with our life with our conditioning that we want some resolution we want some understanding so another way that the Buddha talked about Suffering, um, which is called like these, a lot of these catch-all lists, uh, not getting what we want. Anybody here not relate to not getting what we want? Right? Whether it's you didn't order this body, maybe you wanted another body, you, didn't, you forgot to fill in the catalog body before you took birth. You know, uh, many different things. Or relationship, not getting the the the. The economic circumstances, the, the the right kind of beans for dinner, you know, whatever it is, the, not getting what we want. 
there's a constant nagging with that. And if we relate to it in a certain way, and I'm going to talk about the relationship, because it's really the relationship to all of these things is the difference between whether we suffer, whether we feel some ease or equanimity or peace. Living in the Bay Area, if you live in the Bay Area, I live in, I live in this beautiful valley that's, um, that's like living in a rainforest in the summer. And um, I, I'm very aware of this, not getting, I want sun, <laughs> but it's foggy every day. <laughs> and so, you know, depending on how I would choose to relate to that, that fog will either bring suffering or not. So you can make your own uh, reference to that, not getting the attention you want, or the acclaim for your work, or your teaching, or the, the amount of students in your classes. Anybody notice that one? You know, when three people show up for your class, does that twinge something inside? Getting what we don't want. So, I've been getting some IRS letters recently. <laughs> That's definitely in the category of getting something we don't want. Or tight hamstrings in the morning. Or a restless mind in meditation. Or termites. Or athlete's foot, you know. I mean, we we could all just shout, just just shout out. Somebody say something. A what? A sinkhole. A sinkhole. You have a sinkhole. Goodness, that sounds terrible. I don't know what it is, but it sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Yes, your house is sinking. That sounds like something you wouldn't want in your house. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Anything else? Climate change. Climate change, yes. Thank you. The bigger issues of our lives. Yeah. Was something over there? Gas. Gas. <laughs> yes. And that includes the people around us, usually, too. I got a couple of years ago, and I woke up one morning and I had Bell's palsy, which was the one side of your face looks like you've been in having in a, too many LA salons getting Botox, and you <laughs> it looks really mellow, and the other part of you is really normal. It looks really weird because this part is not moving. That was a shock. I'm not getting what we want. It was a, it was a great teaching on. Uh, I, went, I, was, I was in a class the following, I was teaching that day and I was wondering why my face wasn't functioning so well. Um, got a diagnosed that night and the next day I was in a class and um, the thought came, oh, I can love this too. I can love this too. It's like, oh, an invitation to, to love this very weird, crooked face. You know? Fortunately, it was temporary. Some people, it's permanent. So the third uh, in this list is losing what we have, losing what we love. Losing what we have, we all lose a lot of things. I mean, I lose my keys a lot. That's just a, that's just a simple drag. But we lose many more valuable things. We lose our health. We lose loved ones. We lose youth. What else do you lose that's painful for you? Money. We lose money. Yeah, lots of it sometimes, or all of it sometimes. Yeah, what else? We lose our teeth. (laughs) We lose our hair. We lose our eyesight. Memory. Memory. What did you say? (laughs) (laughs) That was terrible. (laughs) We lose status. Very common when we retire. We lose a certain identity. Sometimes that's freeing, sometimes that's painful. And lastly, we, uh, the fourth definition from the Buddha or outflow of dukkha is um, uh, being separated from that which we love. Right? So maybe you're feeling that here, you're separated from, from your children or from your partner or from your, your loved ones, wherever they are, near or far. 
But there are other things that we are separated from that we love. Anybody like to say? Ourselves. Ourselves, thank you. Yes, we are separated from ourselves, can be separated from ourselves. We're separated, what's most painful is we're separated from, from understanding the truth of who we are, from our true nature. And so we, we live with, with a mistaken notion, belief, and then limiting constructs about who we think we are. And we identify with those and we suffer. And Richard was speaking to them yesterday. We feel separated from each other. In this, in this identification of individuality, we feel separate. This is for, from Patanjali. He said, pure awareness is to abide in its nature. Otherwise, awareness takes itself to be the patterns of consciousness. So mostly we inhabit the patterns of consciousness and take them to be who we are. It causes a lot of suffering. Or as Rumi said, we are the ones that we are looking for. We look outside of ourselves because we feel separated from that which we are. So the Buddha spoke many, many, in many, many places and teachings about this. The the fundamental cause of suffering is this misunderstanding of ourselves, of identifying, uh, misperceiving, misconstructing the nature of the self. So we take birth in these limited identities and the judging mind is one way that we take births very frequently. I remember recently on a retreat somebody, there was a yogi came in and they, uh, they closed the windows and then I had this whole superego attack, this whole judgment attack about who does she think she is to close the windows and what about somebody else? Maybe they would like the windows open and maybe you've had this little drama going on in your head or you've done something. And then this whole identity of being deficient or unworthy or bad or wrong. And then we take that to be who we are and we feel miserable yeah? until we see it, till we see it's just a patent, conditioned pattern of mind, of thought. So the Buddha went on to give many other uh, descriptions of dukkha, and I, I won't have time to go into them, and you'll be happy about that. <laughs> uh, I'll just mention them, the dukkha of the body. Yeah, you're yoga practitioners and yoga teachers and students. You know about the, the dukkha of the body, of just the limitations of the body, of the form, of being asked to move into a posture that feels uh, uh, a stretch, you know. Just having tight hamstrings, you'll know about the dukkha of the body. But all the different ways that the body can suffer and feel distress. The dukkha of transience, the dukkha of change. This is really a fundamental uh, uh, teaching and way that if we don't understand this, we create more suffering. Somebody was, re- was referring to this the other day. Um, Perhaps it was Frank in in my group. Um, When we don't see, when we don't live with the truth of change, what do we do? We get upset when it changes. We hold on. We we think if we grasp tight enough, it'll be okay. Has it worked for any of you yet? (laughs) No, it's a funky strategy that doesn't work. But until we keep seeing it, we keep grabbing on to the person has anybody grabbed onto bliss this retreat? You're getting a little concentrated, a little sukha comes, a little mm, openness, expansiveness, radiance. Mm, right, here I am. Okay, now here we go. It's going to be like this the rest of the retreat. It's great. I hope they don't do any more for passing just concentration. This is great. And just often that very thought process starts agitating the mind. And then what happens? The, the, the concentration goes, the, the state goes, and then we feel demoralized because we've grasped onto something which is by its nature going to change. And we all know this. I'm not telling you anything that's new, but I'm just reminding you, I'm reminding myself to see, oh yeah, this changes too. The most delicious, the most beautiful 
It also, the good news is it applies to the most horrible, the most difficult, the most distressing. We don't need to hold on to the reality that's going to continue, because guess what? It won't. The worst sit you, you ever have in your life, you know, whatever that means to you, you know, bring it on. Because guess what? The bell goes and off you go and you go have a cup of tea. Yeah? So it allows us to let go when we see that. And then there's the dukkha of an untrained mind. Now that's what one we're getting quite familiar with, the dukkha of an untrained mind. The Buddha said there's nothing that can serve you more fully than the trained mind, and nothing that can hinder you so much than an untrained mind. And we see when the mind feels trained in a, in, in a moment or over some minutes and it feels dexterous and malleable and pliable and, and it actually does what you tell it to do, and it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's clear, it's radiant, it's strong. But we also deal with the mind that's not like that, the mind that thinks 65,000 thoughts a day, that most of them we thought yesterday, that we plan and proliferate about everything and anything. Haven't you been amazed where you've gone in meditation? I mean, I've heard stories already. I was in Rome, and I was looking, I was being an astronaut, and I was working out you know, astronomy, and <laughs> the architecture of the room, people sitting here and work out, how do they do the cross buttresses? I don't know where the supporting, it's a high... We've had people redesign the color of this room ad nauseum. And the mind that tells you, well, you know, you're doing really well. You could take a break. Go, go have a cup of tea. You know, you just, you know, you're supposed to be balanced. You're wise effort, you know. And then you get back to the hole and you're like, you're such a slacker. You can't believe you didn't go to that walking meditation. I can't believe you. So... Working with all of this, working with the dukkha that arises in our mind, heart, body, life. First to remember that when dukkha is arising, that we're not doing something wrong. It's the universal nature of our experience. And so to watch that first layer of adding suffering to ourselves by saying, oh, I must be doing something wrong. This is a problem. This is a problem. No, it's just the next thing to hold with presence. We personalize that which is universal and think, oh my God, I'm the only one who's struggling with a monkey mind. Right? How many times have you thought, I'm the only one that's not getting this? I'm the only one who doesn't understand what the hell is saying in the Dharma talks. I'm the only one who, whatever. You know? And to remember that the, the, the dukkha, that the unsatisfactoriness that we go through is a, is a profound Dharma door. It's one of the most potent dharma doors that we have in, in this life. This is from Nisargadatta Maharaj. He said, The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, we find it painful. However, you will find an acceptance of pain, a joy, which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending, of the, the, the ending of this pattern, with its desires and fears, enables you to return to your real nature, the source of happiness and peace. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy, and a depth which pleasure cannot yield. So to, 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 to actually to open and welcome, oh, Dukkha, suffering, okay, now I get a chance to look at this and what, see how I'm relating to this. And as I said earlier, it, the, the key is how, I, how we relate to these experiences of the dukkha in the mind and the body, how we add to it, how we resist. So there's this great line from Hafiz's poem where he says, um, uh, you have all the ingredients in in your life, you have all the ingredients within you to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Which, of course, we do. A little bit of envy, a little bit of judging, a little bit of, what was the other one? Uh, comparing. Yeah, we feel miserable. 
you know, a little bit of resistance and why is this happening to me? And we collapse. We have all the ingredients to turn our life into a joy. Mix them, mix them, he says. Or as Viktor Frankl says, it's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. So how do we carry? We've all been asked to carry a burden. We all have our burdens in our lives, in our meditation. How do we show up? How do we be with it? How do we meet it? Mindfulness is a deep listening and a deep meeting of the moment with kind, curious, open, receptive, inviting attention. Oh, and this. And this, I, I, the metaphor I use for myself is, I'm always widening the goalpost. Oh, and this, oh, now my knees are burning. And this, oh, now my buttocks are searing. And this, and now I'm feeling self-judgment. And this, can I open to this too? And this, now I feel like I'm a great yogi because I'm being with this and this. Oh, pride, and this. So the Buddha's teaching on that was he talked about it in reference to the two darts, where he said the first dart is the, is the, is the ordinary aspect of suffering that we encounter in, in our lives, the, the, the suffering of aging, of loss, of physical pain, etc., of cold, of fear. And then the second dart, which we, which we, which we sort of put into ourselves, whether mostly with our thoughts, is, well... How come I'm still dealing with this? I should be over this by now. How come I'm still grieving? You know, I should have resolved this physical pain. Why am I the only person not getting this? We add this second dot, and so we add to the suffering by our response, by not seeing clearly. So what's key in our practice is, uh, in terms of mindfulness, is rather than what we normally do in our lives, which is turn away from distress and difficulty, we actually are wanting to turn the lens of mindfulness towards, to be open, to be curious. Oh, as I said before, what is this? This is from Jung, he says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious, by making the darkness conscious through our lens of awareness. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and not very popular. Right? So what we're doing here is countercultural. The Buddha called it against the stream. We go against the stream of the habit of the impulsive reptilian brain to recoil from the unpleasant, to recoil from the cold, to recoil from fear, to recoil from distress. Right? As Ajahn Chah says, by doing that, by running away from suffering, we run towards it because we can't avoid it. It comes back around, it bites us in the tail. So we, 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 we lean into it. We, you know, something comes up, some, we wake up and we're in the sitting and there's feelings of loneliness or despair or sadness or loss or existential angst. And we, we, there's a, there's a, we turn that lens of awareness, oh, what is this? We feel it, we sense it, we get curious. We, with, with, that's not analyzing, it's simply being curious. Oh, what is this? My nephew, uh, who was about five when he t- taught me this, um, this nursery rhyme, English nursery rhyme, uh, uh, he, he grew up in Northern England, and um, he had this little very cute Geordie accent, Northern dialect, and he, he was about going through puddles and it's a great metaphor for your practice. So you, and he's, you know, every like every toddler with he puts his wellies on his whatever you call them here, his rubber boots, and um, stomping through the puddles. And he would sing this song in the rain. He would, he would say, "You can't go under it. You can't go over it. You can't go around it. You've got to go through it. <laughs> you can't go under it. You can't go over it. You can't go around it. You've got to go through it." So I was like, "Okay, Zen master." <laughs> I have to go through this. I have to go through this rainy puddle. Okay. <laughs> so, and as we do this in our meditation, in our practice, of course, it gives us tremendous resources in our lives. Right? We practice here, so we have the strength and fortitude and and resilience to deal with with bigger waves in our lives in our relationships, in our work, in, in whatever distressing situations we may encounter externally or internally. 
And it's particularly true with our emotional life. With the, with the you know, some of the, the, the major sources of distress for most of us come through the heart. Yeah? The loneliness, the deficiency, the um, despair, the hopelessness, the sadness, the, the fear, the restlessness. Yeah. How do we meet the heart when it's in distress? Uh, at some point later in the treat, I'll talk more about the heart qualities. That you know, it's essential as we bring this mindful quality to our experience that we also it's infused with tenderness, it's infused with kindness, it's infused with a warmth, with a, with a holding, just as we would hold any being that we love who's in distress, we would hold them right, with a kind awareness. It wouldn't be like, okay, I'm gonna be with your grief. No, no, it's like, oh, ow, this hurts. Yeah, I feel it, and you let it in. You see, we let it into our body, we let it into our heart, we open to it. Why do we do that? Because doing that is causing suffering. By opening to it, we get to uh, as Ajahn Sumedho says, we stand under it, we get to understand, well, what is this? Oh, this, this gnawing feeling, this tightness in my heart that I thought was just tension actually turns out to be just this fear of being alive. Oh, what's that fear of, fear of opening? Oh, what's the fear of opening? I feel like I'm going to crack open, and oh, that's scary. So we just we get curious, and, we, and the, the experience unfolds and moves through rather than staying stuck. So to trust in the practice of uh, mindfulness and concentration that you've been developing that has this capacity to really move into and meet your experience, to be with it, to hold it in a bigger space so we can not be so identified, so there's some disidentification happens, there's space, there's holding. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, he says, uh, talking about uh, the truth of cessation, which is the third noble truth, but it's really, of course, the, all these truths interweave, and as, we, as we'll be giving these talks, you'll see how they interweave. He says, to allow the truth of cessation to work, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering, because it is embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we are suffering, then we go to the actual suffering that is present. We open completely to it, welcome it, concentrate on it, allowing it to be what it is. That means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom, despair, and doubt, and fear in order to find that they cease when we stay with them. So we're with something, and as all things come and go, they arise, we're with them, we understand them, and they pass away. And there's a moment of peace, a moment of cessation. And in doing this, particularly as we come to meet the difficulty in our hearts, what also develops out of this practice is a certain fearlessness, a certain courageousness. Because we, we no longer are afraid to meet whatever arises in our experience. And this is a tremendous capacity to bring to the world, to yourself, to your students, to, your, to anybody you meet. Because often when we're triggered by people, it's because we, and we're reactive to people because we don't like what's being triggered in us because we're not able to, we haven't learned how to be with that experience in ourselves. So as we develop this capacity to be open and willing to be with anything in, our expel, in ourselves, it's, it creates a tremendous courageousness, tremendous fearlessness. It's a soft strength, it's a vulnerable strength. So, um, to summarize, really just to reiterate that the, the last piece that, I, that I've been speaking to, um, to be curious about the distress or anguish or pain or suffering that arises, noticing any beliefs or story that arise, noticing how you might add to that, bringing quality of a kind, mindful attention, and really exploring your relationship. What is it? What is this? How am I relating to it? Am I adding to the suffering through my reactivity, through my contraction, through my inability to be with it, 
to not judge that, but just to, to hold all of that with a kind attention. And over time, that capacity allows us to find what the Buddha was pointing to. And the Buddha said to find the peace beyond conditions. It means to, to be able to abide in awareness with whatever comes and goes in the field of our experience. And to be still, to be at ease, to be at peace. So let's sit for a moment. And as you sit, I'm going to read a poem that speaks to the power of this practice. Turning towards the difficult. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So thank you for your attention. We'll have a walking practice and we'll have sitting in about 20 minutes. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.